Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Today, we are continuing with our Women in Leadership series. This is a year-long project, and I'm very excited to have a friend of ours, Jenny High, who will be, uh, we, she will be the story within the story today. I am going, she sent me a bio, and I'm going to read every word of it, because this is her story, her leadership story, her leadership journey. And this is why in this bio, we are doing this kind of project because of the magnitude of women who serve in leadership takes on many forms and many fashions and many roles. And we cannot underestimate the power of the work that they are doing. And I'm gonna read her bio as she sent it to me, her introduction verbatim. She begins with, where do I begin? Hmm, well, my name is Jenny and I am a mom to five and currently in the process of adopting one more. My kids are by far my greatest accomplishment. Raising them, most are now in high school, has been a blessing. That said, it has also been my biggest challenge. Out of five kids, they all have something that makes life a bit interesting. I have, one on, I have one on the autism spectrum, two on the fetal alcohol spectrum, four with pretty significant anxiety, two with bipolar disorder, one with schizophrenia, and one with cyclical vomiting disorder. Balancing their needs with their wants can sometimes be more challenging than one would assume. But they are all amazing teens and I couldn't imagine life without each of them. Raising five unique individuals with big personalities and even bigger dreams keeps me on my toes and brings me joy in ways I would have never imagined had they not entered my life. I'm continually learning and growing with each step in each of their journeys. We've navigated my husband's three deployments together. We've entered into relationships with two of our kiddos' birth family together. We are on our second adoption journey together. Three of my kids watched me walk through cancer. All of my children have watched me fiercely advocate for them. Before I go on, please let me say to any of you out there raising kids with, variety, with varying abilities and, or past traumas, you are heroes. Any of you could have been asked to speak on this podcast because like our children, your voice is powerful and I'm sure you would have a lot to share with those listening. When Mark asked me to interview, and share my story as part of his Women in Leadership series, I was taken aback. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Until sitting down to write this, I didn't think of myself as a leader, but I knew there had to be a reason Mark asked me to be a guest. And now I see it. I am raising five world changers. My skills and parenting choices have made a difference in the lives of these kids I have been entrusted to raise, just as my own parents' skills and parenting choices made a difference in mine. My parents are both very, were both very intentional in the way they raised me and my brother. They showed us constantly that people of all walks of life and every race were to be celebrated and cherished. We talked about injustices, and I grew up watching my parents break social norms in so many ways. For most of my youth, my dad worked from home. He was also the one to most often cook our meals and clean the kitchen. Just as my mom supported his career at home, my dad supported her career outside of it. 
They complemented one another perfectly in their relationship, and they continue to now even in retirement. Their relationship has always been one that I aspire to, and I'm so thankful that they raised me in the way that they did. It has shaped so much of my relationship I have with my husband and the way I raise my children. I saw a quote the other day that said, great leaders don't tell you what to do. They show you how it's done. My parents did just that. And I hope and pray that one day my children will look back on their childhood and think the same of my husband and me. My parents showed me that anyone can be successful in their own ways and not to let the constraints of society put put on us or limit us. Sorry if I read that wrong. I'm going to read that sentence again. My parents showed us that anyone can be successful in, in their own ways and not to let the constraints society puts on us limit us. I try to share that with my kids by showing them that they can do anything they set their minds to. And let me tell you, they are big dreamers. As Mark and I can tell you, as Mark can tell you, my middle son is a phenomenal dancer and he is an amazing dancer. My insert. From a young age, he has had a passion for the arts and that he had had a strong desire to perform. His goal is to one day pursue dance as a career, and I have no doubt in my mind that any goal he puts to his mind he can achieve. My youngest, my daughter, has so many obstacles in her path. She was born addicted to pills and exposed to various things. She has learning delays caused by those exposures in combination with a traumatic past. She is also a different race than most of her forever family. She has so much in her way, so much that could hold her back, and nobody would think twice if they knew anything about the hand she's been dealt. But her, girl, her goals currently are to achieve the goals set forth in her IEP, and even though those goals are ones that started out as quite lofty, she is crushing it. She started this year with a reading level far higher than that of her comprehension level. She has worked tirelessly and is now comprehending at what I believe is the same level she is reading and her reading level has improved. Society and teachers tell them of their goals and dreams, tell them both, tell them both of their goals and dreams were not for them. My son was told teacher, by teachers in middle school that dance was in a real sport like football. My daughter was told that her IEP goals were more for the teachers and that they didn't actually expect her to reach them. And my husband and I tell them, or told them, if they put their mind to it, they could prove them all wrong. As I write this, tears are streaming down my cheeks. So proud of my kids. Even though I know that the encouragement and love we offer them and the life we have modeled for them has inspired them to do great things, they are the ones who have made their own accomplishments. Just like that quote I shared and just like my parents, we showed them and encouraged them, but they applied their own skills in order to be successful. So I suppose in a way that does make me a leader. Thank you, Mark, for seeing, in me, seeing me as a leader and encouraging encouraging me to be here today. Jenny, hi, my friend, my honor, and my great joy and privilege to have you here on Molina Leadership Solutions, series of women in leadership. How are you feeling? Nervous, <laughs> but we're going to do this and it's going to be okay. <laughs> so as you mentioned deployments, for some that will hear this and see this, that word deployment is going to be a foreign concept. And being a professor, former professional soldier, I understand what that means. You were at one point, your husband was active duty army and you were an army wife. And I understand that that's 
that's a huge uh, accomplishment, not necessarily spelled out here. Your husband had um, two, served two tours in Iraq. He is currently an active duty National Guard uh, and non-commissioned officer. He just returned from Kosovo and he's also a Eugene police, uh, police officer. When you had cancer, you were, act, he was active duty, you were an army wife, and he was deployed, is that correct? Yes. Talk to us a little bit. We're, this is a lot to digest, and we're just gonna help you tell your story today. <laughs> so if I bounce around, bear with me. Talk to us a little bit when you found out, how you found out, how you managed that, how you managed the home and the children while he was deployed to in a combat situation? Um, so we found out kind of by accident. Um, I had gone to the doctor because I was having some just strange things happening. And um, she suspected that was what was happening. Um, but at the, like through that process, we also found out that I was pregnant with Peyton. Um, and so we had to kind of put everything on hold. Um, so not only did I like find out I probably had cancer with my husband gone, but I also found out that I was pregnant while my husband was gone. Um, so that was a lot, um, you know, and so there's a lot of fears that go with that. There's, you know, the fear of what happens if the cancer takes over? Will I lose my child? Um, what will happen if that continues to grow and I've already got two small children? Um, we were living, I guess we were here because I did, my, my doctor is here. She's phenomenal. Um, but we did move over the course of all of that um, up to, because he got stationed in Tacoma. Um, but she told me from the very beginning, like your body will grow a baby or your body will grow cancer and we won't know until this progresses what is going to happen. And obviously I have my son, so he came of that. But then very quickly after he was born, we had choices to make and, um, you know, the military's insurance is not always great. And so um, they denied my surgery time after time after time. Um, and the doctor eventually, um, she will never say it, but I never received a bill. And I'm pretty sure she wrote off the whole thing. I didn't see a bill from the, um, from the hospital. I didn't see a bill from the anesthesiologist um, nothing. So that was like a huge blessing. Um, but it was a lot and, you know, my kids still have some of the trauma from that. Um, you know, my oldest is 18 and still afraid of shots and needles and hospitals and, um, and even Hayden, my middle son, he's, He's afraid of all of those things too, because they both remember just seeing me in and out of a hospital and having IVs and all these different things. Um, but, but yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. This is very compelling. I, those, that's one of the pieces of the conversation. We met 
your son, my youngest daughter, was going to Identity Dance Company, and that's where we met. Yeah. And I remember there was such an essence to who you were when I saw you smile. There was this kindness and this genuineness, this humility. Do you remember me walking up to you? And introduce <laughs> I do. What <laughs> I, I don't remember what you said to me, but I remember it was just, you know, like I knew the people I knew and then I usually kind of stayed with them and then you approached and it was like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to meet somebody new today. Okay. <laughs> but I'm, you know. I, 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 remember, I don't. Yeah, I remember you shared the story and that I walked up to you and said, hi, my name is Mark Molina, and what's your name, or something like that. <laughs> but you are, your husband's deployed to combat. He just got back. Oh, he just got back. Yeah. You I find out you're pregnant. Or, yeah, he was, sorry. <laughs> he was deployed, wasn't he? But he was deployed. He And then he got back shortly after. Um, and Peyton was actually born on our wedding anniversary. So like that year was totally kind of a weird year. And it was like a little nod that he was supposed to be there. <laughs> like there, yeah, it, it was kind of a surreal experience. Like I knew I had cancer and then my kid ends up being born like we knew he was our last that I could physically have and then he's born on our anniversary and there's so many pieces to that puzzle and to that time that just yeah I was meant to walk through that I guess is <laughs> is what I'm getting at so he's your husband, Steve, is at in deployed into Iraq. He's in a combat zone. He's in a combat zone. You're home with your children. Mm -hmm. You find out you're pregnant and you have cancer. And the doctor tells you your body's going to grow one or the other. One will find mm -hmm. out what happens. Surely at some point your husband returns from that was his first or second tour of combat. That was his first. His first. He comes home, and I like to add that your husband is also a survivor of the Thurston High School shooting. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Now, you have you have your child. Peyton is born on your wedding anniversary. The cancer then comes on, uh, develops within you. Yeah it it kind of took over almost immediately. Like within a month, I was back in the hospital. Okay. And so for those that that might consider your comments to be strange about the military system, uh, it's not. Because I had a child that was born with severe uh, neurological disorders and the military, I got, the military got to the point where they paid a certain amount of money and I remember when they notified me, this is in the 90s, uh, we've paid this much amount of money and the following, the following fifty-three or the leftover fifty-three thousand dollars belongs to you. And so I had to cash in my education benefits uh, to pay f towards medical benefits, the medical bills. And when I got out of the army in 1995, I had been paying on all the leftover bills, and I paid the final, I believe, like seventeen hundred dollars off 
uh, of, the, of his final medical bill. So for those that are listening, what she's saying is not uncommon. It is not an exaggeration. And it is not outside of how the military does not always uh, care for military service members or their dependents. And so I wanted to validate what you were saying for those that might think that that could, my God, that could never happen. I can assure you it happens every single day. That being said, your two, two of your kids, your older kids are traumatized by what you went through for the cancer. Talk to me a little bit for the audience, the human component of you have your child, Peyton's born on your anniversary, the cancer comes back full force. How are you managing all that trauma? Your husband's in combat. You have, you're pregnant now. You have cancer now. He comes home. You're a stay-at-home mom. You're trying to manage appointments, trying to manage all of these things. You have a baby on your anniversary, and now the cancer comes back full force. How were you managing these incredible emotions and this terrible, terrible experience? Um... I don't really know. It was kind of a blur. I, there was, I remember just being really sick some days and AJ, my oldest was, he was young. He wasn't even in, um, he wasn't even in kindergarten yet. Um, but he knew how to help care for his siblings, um, enough that if I, couldn't do something he absolutely could um and he just kind of figured it out um which says a lot because he's he's the one that I have that's on the spectrum um he's definitely one of my kids that society told him he couldn't um and he overcame obstacles that not only no kid should have to do, but that um, a kid on the spectrum would have a harder time with, and he did it with grace. Um, and so he kind of navigated some of that stuff and stepped into, into a bigger role than he was even old enough to do. Um, we had family that would help when we needed it. Um, I had um, a friend that, you know, we would go to the grocery store together or whatever so that um, none of us were alone when we did things. Um, so that was always helpful. Um, and, you know, I just, it was awkward because I'm not one to really ask for help very often. And I had to learn that skill in, in that time. Um, and then, you know, Steve came back and we moved very quickly um, from when he came back to, um, to the Tacoma area because um, he got stationed at um, Fort Lewis. And I was still, you know, in the midst of cancer, I still hadn't had, like the insurance was still denying all of my procedures. And now we're in a new area and I was forced like to decide, do I change doctors? Do I trust the military hospital with my care or do I stay where I'm at? Um, and I would drive down, you know, I'd make the four and a half hour drive for 
everything from lab work to doctor's appointments to surgeries. Um, there were days when I'd drive down, get labs, drive back up and be home in one day um, because I wasn't gonna risk switching my care in the middle of all of that. Um, so we just kind of did what we had to, I guess. I was stationed at Fort Lewis from 92 to 94. They have a Madigan Army Medical Center there. And I'd like to put into perspective for those that would hear this, the OBGYN at that time had as a civilian lost his license for mistreating women, but the military hired him and made him their chief OBGYN there at Madigan Army Medical Center. Not all army medical, not all army doctors are bad. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just saying for validation that those things happened all the time because not everyone wants to be a military doctor because of some of the requirements, but sometimes they would take the worst of the worst because they needed to fill a position. And so I understand why it, this just adds another component to what you were going through the ordeal. Do I switch doctors? Do I trust the military doctors? Do I start my care all over again with people I don't know who don't know me? And when you needed labs, any type of medical services, you had, and I made that four and a half hour drive from Fort Lewis many, many times. And it's four and a half hours, even if you can manage to do 65, 70 all the way without getting caught. And so you had to drive that four and a half hours, get whatever attention you needed, then turn around drive back in one day and then still take care of your children and take care of your family. And I'm not sure why you question whether or not you're a leader. <laughs> My goodness, that is an, an immeasurable amount of strength and discipline and devotion. And you did that. How different kind of question. How was it for Steve? Was he able to, did he have his unit support, the unit commander support? What kind of internal internal military support was he granted as you were requiring this type of uh, medical support going back and forth to from here to Fort Lewis, to treatment here, back and forth? Talk, talk to us about that part of the journey. Um, So, I mean, during the first part of the journey, he was obviously deployed. Um, and unless things got worse, he couldn't come home and things didn't get worse. So he couldn't come home. And even, um, I'm trying to remember, but I think that was the deployment that ended up getting extended by three months anyway. So it went longer than it should have. And then, um, so it was like 15 months instead of 12. Um, and then for the second, part of that whole um, experience, um, he was training for his second deployment. So um, there were lots of trainings away and things like that. Um, and I don't think he's, he's not an oversharer like I am. So I'm not sure how many people really knew what was going on because um, we were in a new place. Um, so, even like I was, I was part of the FRG and I'm not even sure most of them knew. Um, Cause you know, we were starting over and sometimes that's hard to start over and be like, oh, by the way, 
<laughs> this is what I'm dealing with. Um, so I don't think either one of us had a whole lot of support there at that time, just because we were navigating a new place and a new experience. Um, so it was, we kind of did it ourselves. That's not a, an uncommon experience within military families. The idea that there's, each unit has what it's called their support group. But you and I know a lot of that is in theory, primarily in theory. And regards to documentation, it might seem viable, but we know that that's not true. And so here you are dealing with your cancer, you can't talk about it, having to come back and forth, newly moved to Fort Lewis in Tacoma, Washington. Your husband's deployment is extended by three months. He returns. Then he starts preparing for his second deployment, and he has long deployments, long training regimens, and you're still dealing with your cancer and raising your family and raising your children and supporting his career and getting your medical tre treatment, and you still think you're not a leader. No. Well, I can kind of see it now. <laughs> Now, <clears throat> talk about, let's talk a little bit about the messages from your family. How in this part of the journey, I want to talk about this a little bit because you mentioned your mother and your father. You mentioned the, the, the example that they modeled. How were they integral in this, this part of your, your journey? Um, they just were always there. It, I, they always have been. <laughs> Um, I know that if, you know, like my mom has her own health stuff going on right now, but I still know if I call them and I need something, like even with this last appointment, if I needed something, they would be there. Um, and they always were. Um, you know, like I said, Peyton was born while Steve was deployed and my mom, I believe, was the first one who held him. Um she cut his umbilical cord. She gave him his first bath. Um, so they were just there. My dad had the boys while my mom was in the hospital with me um, so that someone was taking care of, of them. And, you know, I know that they would do it all over again in a heartbeat um, because that's just who they are. Um, and they would do that for anybody. I don't even think that they'd just do that for me and my brother. I think they'd do that for literally anybody that needed it. Um, obviously, we would take priority because we're their kids, but <laughs> they would totally do that for anybody. Um, and I've seen them do stuff like that for people. And, you know, they even did it this last deployment when, you know, we needed help with things or whatever. So... So this expression of last deployment for those, again, that are listening and don't understand military jargon or military lingo, her husband just returned from Kosovo with the National Guard. Uh, he was deployed on another peacekeeping mission. And some of the men in his unit, I was their cup master. 
uh, scoutmaster and soccer coach. <laughs> so it was interesting to, to, to know that so these many of these young men I coached for years, many of them have multiple tours of combat and multiple de- deployments. Now, Jenny, let's pivot a little bit. Before I do, though, how long have you been cancer-free? Um, since 2008 or nine. I think it was 2009. Okay. Let's pivot a little bit because I want, I want to make sure that we have some clarity on your children because I don't want... I want to make sure that when I, after reading that bio, people aren't thinking she's adopting children, even though, or these children with fetal alcohol syndrome are her kids, you know, biological kids, <laughs> and that she's still being allowed to adopt. You know, that for the for the sake of clarity and communication, let's talk a little bit about um, your children. You have. I'll read again. Out of five kids, they all have something that makes life a bit interesting. I have one with on the autism autism spectrum. That's your oldest. Two on the fetal alcohol spectrum. Four with pretty significant anxiety. Two with bipolar disorder. One with schizophrenia, and one with cyclical vomiting disorder. That's a lot for anyone to manage. Let's talk a little bit about. Give us some clarity on that, some a little bit more uh, perspective on how all of this has happened and the joy that you have in caring for them. Um, so my oldest is the one on the um, on the autism spectrum. Um, and it's it's cool because even his pediatrician didn't put it in his medical record because he's learned to adapt so well. She doesn't want a diagnosis to label him kind of like we don't want his diagnosis to label him, which is really, that's been huge. Like he knows that that's a struggle for him and he knows how to advocate for himself, but he also knows that it doesn't need to limit him. Um, and then the two with fetal alcohol happen to also be the same two that are bipolar. Um, and one of them is schizophrenic. Um, we adopted those two. One is our second oldest and one is our youngest. Um, we did adopt out of birth order, but they they are both biological siblings. Um, they, um, we adopted through a family for every child. So they came from the foster care system, but they came from Texas, um, even though we lived here. And a family for every child is an awesome organization. Um, if that's a route that anybody ever wants to take. Um, But our son, who's our second oldest, um, he was definitely more exposed to alcohol than other substances in utero. Um, So he has a lot more of the fetal alcohol features and delays than our daughter who, by then, I think it's hard to say because I don't really know much about their history, but I think by then, um, just based on what we know of their story, that she was more exposed to um, prescription pain pills and um, 
mood pills and things like that. Um, so she was born addicted to prescription medication um, and had to be weaned off of that prior to leaving the hospital. Um, and they, they both are bipolar, but that does run in their family. We do know at least one of their biological sisters is also bipolar and their birth mom is as well. Um, and I believe their birth mom is also schizophrenic from what I can tell. And we've started a con like communication with them. Um, we had communication with their biological sisters, but I, because of some medical stuff, I had to reach out to their birth mom this year or this last year. And so, um, she does kind of talk about voices and seeing things that other people don't see. And so I think she's got some of the same things going on that our son does. Um, so there's that. And then um, my four oldest have severe anxiety um, for different reasons. But like I said, my two oldest biological children watched me walk through cancer. Um, and then, or I guess it's not my four oldest it's my three oldest and then my daughter but um then our son and daughter that we adopted from foster care have very extensive trauma histories we are their 33rd family um so it stands to reason that they would have some anxiety um and then my youngest son is the one with cyclical vomiting syndrome and that's a beast all its own so <laughs> um but we got it kind of kind of well managed now so that one's doing pretty good now <clears throat> you said you adopted out of order what does that mean um it's recommended when you adopt that you adopt in birth order so if you have like at the time I don't know, this was five years ago. So I guess AJ was 13 and then Hayden would have been 10 and Peyton would have been nine. Um, typically you adopt in birth order. So then the next child that you add would be younger than your youngest. Um, Preston is actually two days older than Hayden. So, um, so he and Hayden are close in age, but he is definitely the second oldest out of the five children, um, which is not common or recommended most of the time um just because sometimes that can kind of mess things up as far as where kids feel their place in the family is um for us it worked um and for some people it does and for others it really does not so all right so I want to talk about this a little bit for those of us who are not familiar with fostering, who are not familiar with adoption, who are not familiar with the kind of challenges that come with these types of expressions of love, whether it's fostering or adoption. Why this organization, number one, and how or why did they match you with these siblings out of Texas? Um... So a family for every child is not just local. We do have a local branch on West 11th um, in Eugene, but they're kind of all over the place. There's a lot of different states that have them, but they partner with the foster care system 
in all of the states and um, help match children who maybe are having a harder time being matched or things like that. So um, I know like the, the airport and the mall at one point had like pictures of kids on their walls and um, you know, it was called the Orient Heart Gallery. Well, a family for every child is who does that. Um, and so actually Preston and Ariana were also on Texas's Heart Gallery. Um, so we, we have their big picture that, <laughs> that they got taken for that, um, which was kind of a cool thing because they didn't even know that somebody still had that picture um, and they had no idea why it was even taken. Um, but it's just kind of, it's an, it's neat that it helps match kids who might, sorry, I'm getting calls, um, that matches kids who might not otherwise be matched. Like I said, we're our kids' 33rd family. We are also their sixth adoptive placement. Um, so, and that's not, they were in foster care for eight years. It's not common for kids to move around that much. It's not common for kids to have that many failed placements. Um, they are the kids that most would have just turned away from and not even thought twice. Um, so, I mean, I'm glad that, that we went through that organization and that their caseworker found our biography and saw that I worked with life skills students at the time and that I um, worked with kids who were, who had varying different abilities and different things like that. And she was, you know, we were only going to adopt one kid, maybe two, but one kid was what we were thinking. And our requirements were younger than, um, than Ariana was at the time. And their caseworker said, no, you just, you just need to read this file, just read this file. Um, and so we did. And then we were like, okay, well, let's ask for some more information. And we, you know, that just more information just kept coming. And then at that point, how do you say no? Um, so we knew it was going to be hard. We knew adopting from foster care was going to be hard, but then, you know, we were going to adopt younger. So maybe we'd have more time to help this child entrusted to us to be successful as an adult. And then God said, no, I'm going to give you a 10 year old and a seven year old. And here you go. And, and we were like, okay, this is, this is it. And, um, you know, now that we, now that it's been like five years since we were, you know, first introduced to their file, we're kind of like, oh, this is why we were supposed to be matched with these kids. These, they are our family. They were our family before we even knew it. Um, and so, you know, they just kind of fit right in. What kind of conversations did you and Steve have in, during this process? You, someone recognizes your bio, they send you the bio of the kids. 
How did you process, or, or was the information available, 33 families, six different adoptive placements, been in foster care eight years, these are the potential or diagnosed issues we know of currently. If that was all made known to you, how did the two of you come to the conclusion? What kind of conversations did you have? Because what I'm hearing in this, even though your husband's not on this interview with you, is he's been part of this process with you the entire time. What kind of conversations did you have? Why did you want to become foster parents? You've already got three kids. You've already survived cancer. You've already been an army wife where your husband's been to two tours of combat. You've already had this very challenging, demanding lifestyle, and yet there is so much obvious love in your heart and room for others that even with all of those things, there's still space. What kind of conversations were you two having and then ultimately with your children about these issues? Um, adopt? So I knew when I was really young that adoption was something that I wanted to do. So actually, um, when Steve proposed to me, I knew that was not necessarily his heart. And so I was like, oh, I don't know. And so I sat him down and I told him, I was like, this is, this is what I want. Um, and, you know, being a young, like 20 year old kid, he's like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> so I was like, okay, but like, I'm serious. And so, you know, we, obviously waited a while to start that process, but it was always something that um, I would bring up. Um, I have cousins who were adopted. I um, knew kids who had been in the foster care system growing up. Um, and I knew that every kid needs a family. Every kid needs a safe space. Every kid needs a home. Um, and so that was always important. And then, you know, over time, Steve kind of grew into that. Um, and so we actually took our foster and adoptive training when we were stationed in Virginia. Um, so we had kind of started that process there and then, um, so they'll tell you <laughs> when you're adopting or going through that process, there's two categories of families that are harder to place um, for different reasons, um, military being one and Christians being the other. Um, and we were both. And so we kind of waited a little bit because we also didn't know if we were going to be moving anytime soon because the military likes to do that. Um, and so we came here and kind of, we always had a room in every house that we lived in when we moved back set up for a child that we were expecting. Um, even when we weren't in the process just yet. Um, but then we decided we wanted to wait until we bought our house. So we, um, we were in the process of buying this house, which we leased first, um, and we had a room set up and decorated and it had furniture and everything. It was ready 
for a child. Um, and, you know, the boys would ask us and, you know, we would explain to them, like, you have a lot of love in your heart, right? And they're like, well, yeah. And we're like, do you think you could love someone else? And they're like, well, yeah. We're like, so if you have love in your heart and we have love in our heart and we have this space, we can still share that love and that space and provide that um, where not everybody has the means to do that or the space to do that or the desire to do that. I mean, like nobody should enter into foster care or adoption if they don't, if they're not all in, because um, a kid can read that, but we were all in. And so um, we just kind of then decided that the time was right and finished filling out all the paperwork. Um, we made sure that the kids were part of the process. Um, so anytime we made a payment towards our home study fees, the kids were the ones that we had hand them the money. They, um, they knew that this was a process that they were going to be a part of. And so, you know, for a home study, every person in the house is interviewed, um, every room in the house is inspected every, you know, there's all these different pieces, but we wanted the kids to understand that it was a commitment. It was not something to be taken lightly. Um, and so they were a part of every single piece of the process um, intentionally, because we could have just gone and paid for the home study and the kids wouldn't have known any different. And, you know, they would have just been like, oh yeah, these people are here. But like, we wanted them to help fundraise. We wanted them to help, um, take pride in adding to their family and ownership of of that like not ownership of a person but like ownership of that feeling in their heart that they wanted to add to that um because they all agreed they had love in their heart to give and they had space in their house to give and they had um, the desire for younger siblings, like Peyton, even before he was old enough to understand that I couldn't actually have another kid, would ask Santa every year for a baby sister. Um, so he knew from the very beginning he wanted our family to grow. Um, so that was kind of a big a big thing that was just always always part of their growing up i guess <clears throat> your husband is a national guard now and he's a police officer for eugene have there been there any what kind of because because i don't know this is a legitimate question a sincere question are there any concerns or constraints by National Guard or the EPD around these kinds of areas in the life of the either the soldier or the law enforcement officer? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, you go through this to be a police officer, you got to go through background checks and, you know, right. all of those things. I don't know if there's a, a policy, I guess, is a better word. Uh, 
you know, if you're going to adopt a child or, or foster care, whatever, is are there considerations by law enforcement that there should be a different kind of, of concern for the for their police officer and their family, or does the National Guard have criteria? Because when I was active duty, for instance, in, when I was in Germany, and an, a service member fell in love with a German national and wanted to get married, they had to have approval starting with their company commander all the way through the entire chain of command before they could legally do that. And there was a lot of questions and concerns about, you know, just the way the military operates. Is this this legitimate love? What does this person want? Why do they want to come to the country? Things of that nature. So based on those experiences, that's why I'm asking you that question, because I really don't know. Um, Not that we've noticed. Um, They've... I mean, they were all pretty supportive when we walked through the process before. This time we're um, adopting an infant and so the process will be different. Um, But even then we haven't run into anything where there's any hangups for any of that. How are you contending with Jenny, how are you contending with the the emotional needs? Again, just for those that might log on late, out of five kids, they all have something that makes life a bit interesting. I have one on the autism spectrum, two on the fetal alcohol spectrum, four with pretty significant anxiety, two with bipolar disorder, one with schizophrenia, and one with cyclical vomiting disorder. How do you as a mom, how does your family manage that that type of care that's required, whether it's prescription, doctor's appointments, uh, outburst in the home, things of that nature? How do you, what kind of, of uh, preparation, training are you given? And what kind of support do you have? How do you manage that? Um, as far as like preparation or training there was none when um Preston and Ariana entered our home um we were told they had ADHD and some mild anxiety um we were not like we knew they had been exposed in utero um so we assumed there was going to be some kind of fetal alcohol diagnosis but that was not disclosed um and most of their challenges were also not disclosed um And when you enter into adopting from foster care, there's, I mean, there's the classes that you have to take, but then everything else is kind of, sorry, my phone keeps going off. Um, There's always more that you can learn. Um, We were, we were blessed in the fact that I, was already working um, as an EA for the Springfield School District. And then I also um, was a personal support worker for a teenager who uh, was diagnosed as bipolar. So I had a different skill set than my peers would going into the process like this. Um, And then my husband obviously has training for various things through his career. Um, so we, 
I think that's why their caseworker found us was because she read that part of our bio and went, oh, these people are going to know what to do. Um, but until you're experiencing it and you're in it, every kid responds different, even, even with those diagnoses. So you're still learning as you go. Um, so I just kind of dove in with both feet and pooled my resources and asked people who maybe had kids that had different needs and different abilities and asked them like what we should do. I made phone calls when we had IEP meetings that did not go well and learned a lot um, about that process and who to have at your meetings to be on your side so that it's not just a team full of teachers and school personnel against you. Because when you sit in on an IEP meeting and you're the only one there, it's really easy for them to tell you what your child needs when maybe you know what your child needs, but you've got five faces telling you that's not right. Um, Let's talk so, about that. Let's talk about that. I think this is really important because those of us that have not had that experience, uh, it has its own unique challenges. And I can imagine it's very fearful uh, for your family. IEP, is that Individual Education Program? Individualized Educational uh, Plan or something oh, okay, like that. Yeah. Right. So it's a huge responsibility for school districts huge responsibility for teachers, classrooms, classroom settings, as well as you, the parents, releasing the child to the environment. And I know you've had some really challenging scenarios with these settings, with the IEPs, even with particular potential administrators or teachers. How did you manage that? How did you protect yourself, protect your children. And I know, I, and I know you, Jenny, you worked for the school district. I know that you care about the environment you care about the, uh, the children, the teachers help us understand from a leadership perspective, that was a lot of dynamics by a lot of people going on in those meetings all at once. How did you adjust to what was going to be necessary for you to, for you, for you to go in, who should, who should be there with you? Who should be supporting you? How do you advocate? What kind of messages should you be, be communicating? Um, the first few that I did, it was just me and Steve. And we walked away with not a lot of support for, um, to give some perspective. Uh, when Preston came to our home, he had an IEP from Texas that put him in a life skills classroom. Um, he could barely write his own name um, in fifth grade or fourth grade, I guess he was in when he first got here. Um, and, you know, his fine motor skills were lacking. He could barely add single digit numbers. He could not subtract at all. And they put him in a fourth grade classroom, regular fourth grade classroom. Um, so... We knew based on the law that 
the IEP that he came with should have been what got implemented and it was not. Um, it never was implemented. Um, so we would go in to these meetings and they would tell us, let's just try this. I'm like, have you met our son? And um, I was like, he's upset every day after school because he didn't learn anything and he felt out of place. Um, and so then um, we asked around and we called um, various people, but we got a hold of somebody at Oregon Family Support Network um, and they joined us on our next meeting. And then they pointed us in the direction of direction service. Um, so then all of a sudden at our meetings, we had myself, my husband, somebody from Oregon Family Support Network and somebody from direction service. Well, at the time we were on a wait list for therapy for him. And once we had a therapist and a skill builder, all of a sudden our team was six people big. Um, and when you've got six people at a table with a teacher and a school psychiatrist or psychologist, um, a speech pathologist and a principal, now your team is bigger than theirs and you're the one that they're going to respond to. Um, I kind of feel like that's why the team from the school is so big is so that they seem like they know what they're doing when really parents know their children and they know what they need. So it took us until sixth grade to get Preston into any sort of real um, special education classroom, but even then it wasn't great. So we still had to continue to fight um, and now that he's in high school, he's actually in a classroom that fits his environment a lot better or that fits his needs a lot better. But it took us from fourth grade up until, you know, mid seventh grade, eighth grade to get him to where, not even where his IEP from Texas started because he's not in a life skills classroom and he probably he's kind of teetering on the edge as to whether or not he needs that or he needs the environment he's in, but he's doing okay in the environment he's in. So we're happy with the placement, but you know, it took us a long time to get there. Um, and it helps to like ask around and to get people to just listen to you and help you, you know, cause they ask good questions about, how your child will do in this kind of a setting and how your child will do, you know, if this need needs met or things like that. And so then you start thinking outside of the box and, you know, then you can have an easier time meeting goals. And the goal is not going to be that the kid can sit in a classroom. It's going to be that the kid can thrive in a classroom. Um, which is what it should always be, but it's not always there. Do you think the challenges that you are experiencing, this is purely subjective uh, question to you, you're the mom, you were there. Were the, was the struggle a lack of understanding maybe by the school district? Because I, I remember it was quite the journey for you and your husband and the children. Was it... Um, something they hadn't faced before, the unique case of, of your children? Was it, 
is it just such a large administrative process slash and legal process that were causing these delays maybe? So they, the way that the IEP laws are written, they want um, the child to be in the least restrictive environment. And in Preston's case, he could sit in a classroom all day and not be overly disruptive, but he wasn't learning anything. So he could sit in a classroom with his peers, but he wasn't meeting any educational goals. So um, they were content to leave him in a class with his peers because that was the least restrictive environment, but it wasn't what he needed. What he needed was a smaller classroom with a one-on-one -on -one who could talk him through the process and who could assist him in understanding what he was learning so that he could do more. Um, like he still can't 100% read a digital clock accurately. Um, telling time is huge. He's going to need that for as he continues on in life in order to make it to a job on time or to get up and ready for anything that he might want to do. Um, he doesn't understand money. Um, and obviously that's a very important skill to have. So our goals have always been for him that he has a basic understanding of like reading and comprehension even if it's just at like a first or second grade level, which he's not quite at yet. Um, how to understand very basic money math and then um, how to read a digital clock accurately. Our goals for him are far smaller than a school district's goals would be, but they're very, very necessary in order to be successful um, just in basic life. Um, and so we knew we needed the school to partner with us on that um, in order to help him be successful at life. Because um, we don't care if, if he understands division and we don't, you know, we don't care if he understands U.S. history. We care if he can make a simple meal. We care if he can tell time. Um, and so we needed the school to understand that their goals were too lofty and our goals were more based on what he needed to be successful at life. And once we got to that point and once they saw that those are still goals that he needs to work on and that they're still a struggle for him and that kids with, it took them a while to figure out that kids with fetal alcohol need years of rep repetition to master a skill. And so where he might understand something one day, if they tested him on that two weeks later, it would be like he never learned it. Um, and so we needed that consistency and he needed that consistency in order to make some progress in any of that. So. That's a huge commitment on your part as an adoptive mom. A huge uh, commitment by your full scope of your family compliment because it would seem that 
the challenges that they go to school with, they come home with, and it's this ongoing, you're trying to teach your biological children life skills, family interaction skills, communication skills. You have your adoptive children who are now part of that. And it seems like your role, your personal role, it never turns off. And it's always this ongoing uh, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. What are you doing as a mom leading your family through these scenarios? How are you taking care of yourself? How are you managing the significant demand? What are you doing on a personal restorative level so that you don't run out of strength, stamina, energy, or concentration? Um, I've found groups of other moms who get it. So um, before everything shut down, I had actually joined a group of ladies um, who have all adopted children with some form of fetal alcohol. And, um, you know, they have kids of varying ages and, you know, a lot of them have their own biological children on top of the children that they've adopted. And so they all understand all of those dynamics, um, which is kind of a beautiful thing. Um, because then when one of us is having a difficult day, we can talk to another one and kind of gain insight from them as to what worked for them or what didn't work for them. Um, and so like, we still have like a chat on Facebook Messenger. So we check in daily with each other, um, just, you know, and sometimes it's just like a funny little meme that somebody will post or some kind of inspirational something or um, somebody will post asking for advice and then you'll get to be like, oh, wait, I didn't even think to ask for that. And then all of a sudden you've got extra knowledge that you didn't have. Um, so I think that that's really important. Um, and then I just have friends that I talk to on a regular basis that keep me grounded. Um, and I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered over time, my friends have kind of shifted and now a majority of them are adoptive parents. And so even, you know, even when it's not intentional, it just kind of happens. And so I've surrounded myself with with these beautiful people who understand some of that dynamic. Um, and that way I'm not alone, I guess, in it. Even when Steve was deployed and I couldn't talk to him all the time, like I was never, and even when the world shut down, I was never really alone. And so I think that that has been helpful. How long was he in Kosovo for? Um, <laughs> he was there for just under 12 months. Your leadership skills, I can just see as you're talking, listening to you speak, as you tell your story, and as you begin to search how much you've learned and how much they have expanded with all the demands, as with all the responsibilities. I know that your children went through incredible bullying at the school. How did you handle that? How did your family handle that? 
how did you, in your interaction with them personally and privately, how did you help manage? And because I know it was severe. How did you help manage that? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I have my, my mama bear moments, I guess. Um, so my middle son was sexually assaulted on school grounds, um, during recess, um, back in fifth grade and the school covered it up. The district at the district level covered it up. Um, it was, it was awful. Um, and our daughter, when she was in foster care had been sexually assaulted as well. And we had just walked through that process with her of having her interviewed by kids first and having, um, having her former foster family lose their foster license because of what awful things they had done to her. Um, so then to walk through that again with my son, with the emotions still raw, was probably not um, the best time in <laughs> in that situation to have gone through that. Because um, my first instinct was to pull all of my children right then. Um, but it was a month before school was out. And um, I had two fifth graders at the time. Um, and so for while I was trying to find a solution, I would go sit in the hall at the school. Um, I was doing daycare at the time. I would take my kids and we would sit in the hall and I would find activities for them to do so that my son never felt alone um, because he was scared to be there. Um, and I, I watched on more than one occasion that particular student who had done that try to approach him thinking I wasn't there. And so then I found a workaround that worked for the rest of the year, but I did, after the district covered that up, I did end up moving the rest of my children from that school. Um, and then my daughter and um, my youngest son then experienced bullying at the school that I moved them to. Um, both of them experienced significant bullying um, to the point where I was getting calls from teachers saying, can you please come pick your student up because no kid should have to endure what your student is enduring. Um, but then when we have meetings at the school, we were told there's nothing they can do. Um, and so I, it's hard because there's not really a good solution when the people you've trusted your children with tell you there's nothing they can do. Um, and so I would have meeting after meeting, but there was never any progress in that. And so actually COVID has kind of been a blessing in disguise um, because my daughter is learning to navigate relationships with students she might not have otherwise navigated relationships with. And she's, it's been interesting because her teacher has been very intentional this year with who they partner her with. And there's a student that at the beginning of the year, I was like, I don't know if this kid is going to like, I don't know what this kid's going to do, but really they have been her biggest advocate and they, they know that she's a little bit more delayed than the rest of the class and they meet her where she's at. 
Um, so this student does a beautiful job of meeting her where she's at. And so I know that when they go back to a physical building, they've already developed this friendship and I've seen that friendship grow in a way that's very mature for a seventh grader. Um, and so I know that that will work out. Um, so it's just kind of interesting and I try really hard to just make sure that, you know, I don't leave my kids in an environment that's going to completely cripple them because of the traumas that they've already experienced. Like I've had some teachers tell me, well, that's part of life. Well, yeah, but when my daughter comes from 33 homes where she's been told time and time again that she's the problem and she's the reason she's moving, um, you don't then justify the actions of somebody else telling her that she's the problem. You try to find a solution because no kid should have to hear their entire life that they're a problem or they start to believe it. And she's an amazing kid. She should never, she should never have endured what she did. Um, but now we've got to help build her up so that she can be successful in life and so that she doesn't feel the pressure and the burden of feeling like a failure to everybody. Um, so you have to give the opportunity for that. Um, when, now, when I was in the Army, it was very different. We didn't have all the technology they have now, so you still had to write letters as, as nil mail. Were you able to, with when Steve was in Kosovo and you're managing all of these requirements in the home, these duties, responsibilities, were you able to talk by Skype or other methodologies while he was deployed? Um, we texted a lot. He was able to call and text and um, every once in a while we would FaceTime. Um, but I kind of depended on their like internet connection because sometimes things go down. Um, but actually his internet connection when he was on quarantine in Texas was worse than it was in Kosovo. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we were able to talk pretty much every day. He's home. Thank God he's safe. His unit has returned safely. He's going back to his position as a full-time police officer for Eugene. How are you managing this military wife, law enforcement wife, supporting his careers, dealing with all these five beautiful challenges, you're adopting another one. How are you managing all of that responsibility? Because those, that, that, those, if he was just, if you were just an army wife alone, would be huge demand. If you were a law enforcement wife alone with the rotating schedules and uh, all the other pressures that come with that, that would be enough. But you are a military wife and the wife of a law enforcement agent and the mother to five beautifully unique children. Jenny, how are you doing that? <laughs> That's a sincere question. I don't know. We just kind of do it. I don't know. Um, I think being a military wife taught me to just kind of go with whatever life throws at you um, because there's so many unknowns there. Um, 
And some of the things that I've learned over time to adapt to that life translate well into a military life or uh, not a military life, a police life. Um, so like during Steve's first deployment, he was very specific. Don't watch the news. Um, because when you watch the news, then you worry. Um, so I still try not to watch things when my husband is gone because you know, like if he's working or whatever, you might hear something that you don't necessarily want to. There was one, there was one day he was at work and I get a phone call and he says, there's been an accident. I will call you later. And that was the phone call. Well, I learned that day why you don't watch the news or listen to people's reports on things like that. Because if I had listened um, I would have thought my husband was dead um, because based on eyewitness accounts, the um, accident that there was, there was a police officer who died. Witnesses saw something different than what happened. Um, he is very much not dead. He was not hospitalized. He, um, <laughs> both people walked away, um, but a car came up and hit his patrol car and it slid into a ditch and um he had to go to the hospital to be checked out just to make sure that everything was okay but um and it was kind of nobody's fault and it was like this big huge thing on the internet that wasn't actually a big huge thing and so um so i still try not to pay attention to things when he's on patrol because chances are people saw something that didn't happen or you know like in the heat of the moment people's brains kind of distort what they saw because they make up the missing pieces and so um you know there's room for error and so I just try not to not to expose myself to that I, I, I can really appreciate that, Jenny. You know, our mom, I always uh, often wondered how she did it with my father's multiple tours of combat, his hardship tours in the military. And she just, she kept us going. You know, she kept us together. Same message, do what you got to do. Pay attention, go to school, make us line up in the morning, check our clothes. We were, we were poor, but we were clean. No doubt about that. She was not going to have us go to school uh, disheveled, disorderly, or unkept. Now, how do you communicate to your children? How do you guys manage the messaging around daddy's a soldier, daddy's a police officer? You know, how do you guys communicate and talk around rotating schedules, those challenges, as well as all the needs of the children? The kids have just kind of always lived it. So AJ was very young. He wasn't even two yet when Steve joined the military. So, um, so you know, our three biological children grew up with that. Um, and then when Preston and Ariana came here, we just kind of 
they got thrown into it. And so then all of a sudden that's just been what they've experienced since they've been here. So they got here in May of 2016. And in June, Steve had his like two or three week training that the National Guard does every year. So they got thrown into it right away. Um, and so it's just kind of been, it's just kind of been their life. Um, so it's not, not something we necessarily have to explain to them because they just, they just know it. It still has, it's still a, a significant requirement for you as an individual, a mom, a wife, absolutely a woman in a, in a grand leadership position. What are you doing to take care of yourself, Jenny? How are you keeping yourself encouraged? How are you maintaining your faith? How are you maintaining not just your spiritual faith, but your faith and that today is it's today's going to work out. You know, my husband's going to come home from his shift. I'm going to take care of the kids. We're going to be together once again. How are you maintaining that confidence in life uh, with all of these demands? Um. Steve's very confident himself. And so like he's, I never doubt that he's going to come home because of his, his own strength. Um, and I know maybe that's, maybe I'm just giving him too much credit, but, but I think that that helps me to always just be confident that he's going to come back home. I mean, he's, He's gone through some crazy things um, in deployments um, in just regular police work. And, you know, he, he was in the Thurston shooting and walked out of that. So, I mean, he just kind of always, he's always there. Um, and so I guess I've just never doubted that that would always be. Um, we're fortunate that we live in an environment where very often our police officers do come home. Um, if we lived in LA or Chicago or something like that, I might doubt that a little bit more. I do have relatives that are Chicago police officers and I do worry about them constantly because, um, they are in a different environment and, um, you know, especially over this past summer, I definitely, like, they were in the forefront of my mind. Um, but I think that here there's lots of commotion, but there's not a whole lot of, we don't hear about as many different things that might be more, I don't know, big events, <laughs> I guess. So... All right, well, let's pivot the conversation a little bit. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate what you said, because my mom actually, as you're talking, I remember her confidence too. I remember her confidence in herself to do the right thing, her confidence in my father to do the right thing, maintaining that confidence that he was going to come home from whatever, whatever combat tour that was or isolation uh, assignment that was. Let's spend the last few minutes here, Jenny, talking about others. 
if you could speak to a room of young mothers who are facing potentially a life illness, a special needs child, multiple special needs children, what message of encouragement would you give to them? That if God brought them to it, he will walk them through it. Um, I had a, back when I was going through cancer, I had said um, something along the lines of, I know God wouldn't, what did I say? Um, I know God wouldn't give me more than I can handle. And I had a pastor who looked at me and said, I don't ever want you to say that again, because God didn't give you the hardships in your life. Um, God might've allowed them to happen, but those were gifts from the enemy. Um, and God will give you the strength and the courage that you need to walk through it. And he will be there with you. So you don't do it alone. But all of the negative stuff didn't come from him. And that gave me a lot of, a lot of peace because, you know, God didn't give me the challenges or the hardships or he allowed them to happen, but they didn't come from him. They came from the enemy. And so um, that gave me strength. That gave me peace. Um, and, you know, in all honesty, my children's different abilities don't make them, don't make them bad kids. Don't make them a burden. Um, they help me grow as a person and they help those around them grow as people. And they're, each kid is a gift. Each, each thing that they are born with is a gift. Um, and so I think too often people hear a diagnosis and get like really nervous and like, what am I going to do? But I look at my, my oldest who, you know, he talked up until he was 18 months old, like complete sentences and then didn't talk again for a year and a half. And I was told he might not ever talk again. Um, and now he's articulate and um, just got his first job and he's graduating high school this year. And you would never know that that was, that that was what we experienced when he was younger. So you just have to not let the limits of, of a diagnosis hold you or your child back. What would you say to them about seeking help outside of, let's say, a primary care or their immediate doctor, how they might need to, to be encouraged to look for different uh, assets in the community? Um, I think that there are a ton of resources, um, especially in our area, we've learned to kind of navigate a lot of our resources. So there's like an amazing facility in Eugene called Connect the Dots um, for occupational and physical therapy and speech therapy. And, um, and even our daughter who I wouldn't have necessarily thought needed occupational therapy, it's been great in building her self-confidence. Um, which is not why I originally thought we were even going there. Um, so there's so many different resources 
that if you even just give them a chance, um, you might be surprised <laughs> at what they can do. And what would you say to them the importance or the value of making sure that they are getting family support, make sure their 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 relationship with their significant other is strengthened, how they should be communicating with their children, or if, if there are other children, what would you say to them to make sure that those elements inside the home were also uh, taken care of? Um, so we have like an unwritten rule in our house that um, we will never lie to our children about their story. So, um, and you know, that even when it's tough, so our daughter and our son obviously have a tough story um, and we have never sugarcoated it. We've told it to them at where their level of comprehension is, um, but we would never not tell them their story. Um, and then each child is responsible for sharing their own story in their own way with anybody else in the family. Um, and some of our kids share their story with their siblings and some of them aren't ready to and that's cool. And we just make sure that they understand and respect that. And then like for Steve and I, we make it a point to talk to each other all the time. Um, when like before the deployment and before everything closed and you know different things happened um we made it a point to go on like a little mini date once a week um where we'd go to lunch together or just go you know like on a walk or whatever um and we still kind of do some of that stuff but he just got back like just got back so <laughs> You know, he's still spending some time with the kids and they need that. Um, so that's really important. And I know that not everybody has like extended family around that they can rely on, but like getting plugged into groups or finding people who share some of your struggles um, is really helpful. There's lots of different avenues for that. Um, I know there's like MOPS is a really big, Mothers of Preschoolers is what it stands for, but there's also a branch of that that's for young moms who are, I think, teenagers to age 21, I believe is what it is. I used to volunteer with them. Um, and then there's Moms Next that's for um, moms of elementary and up. So there's lots of different groups that you can get involved in. There's you know, like I just happen to find a group of ladies who have kids that are similar to mine. And, you know, I'm able to be like, oh my goodness, like this is going on right now. What should I do? And they've been able to appoint me to like doctors that can help or um, scripture that can help or different things like that. Um, so just knowing someone, even if it's just one person that you can talk to and be open because, you know, having a kid with schizophrenia or having a kid on the fetal alcohol spectrum, like those are very distinct um, diagnoses that not every parent is going to struggle with. Um, but I found my people who I can be open and honest with those challenges so that I don't feel like when Steve's gone, I'm living it alone. So, 
I think that that's valuable. Well, I'd like to add to that, uh, Jenny, you know, uh, we share the same Christian faith. I'm a former pastor. I have served in chaplaincy in hospitals as well as well as jails. And to anyone that would hear this, that will hear this, whatever your faith system is, plug into it because it's you have community there, you can have support there, you can have connection there. <clears throat> Excuse me, you, you will have a, a circle of support that would be very, very critical. I want to show you a picture. That's my baby boy, Jared Aww. Isaiah Molina, that passed away in 1991. So I know the hardship as well as the beauty and the joy of having a special needs child and the extreme effort that's required uh, to bear up under that special assignment in life. And not all of us have the opportunity to carry such a, such a blessing. And that's what it is in the end. We're down to our last minute here. Jenny, I want to just, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for this, this beautifully written bio that helped all of us understand more the complexity of your life. But the journey of leadership that you've been on from the time you left your home as a, as a young lady, the all-encompassing journey and the detail of that what we have to say is not always in words, but how we live our lives is equally the message that's being communicated through action. And your bio that has been supplied shows the level of depth, the level of commitment through action, through devotion, through commitment, and through sacrifice of this great love, but as well this great gift of leadership that you have, you and your husband have, this leadership that's being reproduced in your children to learn, to live, to love, to care, uh, to uh, work together with adopted family members, becoming one. This is why this program, this year-long project, Women in Leadership, is so important to me personally because my mother was like you. And strong, we need examples of strong women in different roles and different capacities because it's not always what they have to say, but it's how they're living that conviction that is just as credible as any other grand position in society. In closing, what would be your final comments? Uh, to anyone about managing the challenges of life? Just to find people to walk with in your journey. Um, so that even on the days when it's hard, you're not alone. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Molina Leadership Solutions, my dear friend, Jenny High, mother of five, five beautiful, distinct children with beautiful histories and stories. Her, she's a military wife, law enforcement wife, advocate, and she is absolutely 100% a woman in leadership. This is why 
your stories like yours must be told. So thank you for your willingness to participate. Thank you for trusting me to help you tell the story. And thank you for sharing the beauty of each one of your children and the relationship with your husband and this amazing, amazing, incredible, indescribable journey of life that you're all walking through together. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.